sitting around, literally around this table that I'm sitting at right now, to be honest, there have been so many business conversations, like Afterpay was ideated here. For a lot of retailers, they, they understand the notion of RFID. This is basically RFID on steroids. I had this inherent need. Uh, it was almost like an obsessive need to know what was going on in my site. And I want to create that same ability in store. Welcome to Add to Cart, Australia's leading e-commerce podcast that express delivers all you need to know in the fast-moving world of online retail. Every week, Nathan Bush from eSuite and an e-commerce industry expert will share the news, research and insights that you need to know to keep you at the top of your game. And of course, keep your customers adding to cart. Hello and welcome to Add to Cart. My name is Nathan Bush, host of Add to Cart and director at e-commerce talent agency eSuite. Today's guest has retail blood flowing through his veins. And tell you what, I wouldn't mind being a fly on the wall when he has the family over for dinner because this is the dinner table where the idea for Afterpay was first knocked about. After taking his parents' jewellery business online with great success, Simon Molnar is now the founder of Flagship, a retail-focused tech company that uses Bluetooth product stickers to give brick-and-mortar stores access to the kind of data and insights that e-commerce businesses have long enjoyed. In this episode, Simon shares the story of how he went from selling Pandora jewellery to his school teacher to building one of Australia's biggest online jewellery sites. He also talks about why his biggest strength is also his greatest weakness and how his ultimate goal is to make manual stock takes a thing of the past. Now, that's going to make him the most popular Molnar, surely, especially amongst retailers. All right, so thanks to our partners, Shopify Plus and Paclio, here's our conversation with Simon Molnar, founder of Flagship. Simon, thanks for joining us on Add to Cart. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. We have some exciting things to chat about. But before we do, let's get the, the monkey out of the room because I was researching and like I've known about you for a long time. We've never actually chatted, which I tried to catch it online retail. We've never actually chatted. But in the research, the first article that came up that I saw was titled Flagship, the startup being built from Afterpay founder Nick Molnar's parents' basement. Now, I've got brothers. That headline would piss me off. Surely that headline annoys you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess the big thing for me is I don't really carry an ego. And I know that, I mean, I've always kind of had the mentality that I'm prepared, prepared to take a personal hit if it's for the greater good. And this was just one of those situations. It's the headline, everything's clickbait, it's going to get the clicks through. It's just ironic that they mentioned four of the original Molners and the one that they didn't mention is the one who the article was about. <laughs> <That's> just, <laughs> I think it bugged a lot of other people more than it bugged me. To me, it's, it's publicity, it's advertising, people hear about us and if it gets people clicking through to read the story, then, then so be it. But um, I, at no point in my life have I felt like I'm in competition with my brother. So if his name's going to drive the traffic, so be it. He's just clickbait now, isn't he? Uh, it's crazy. It's actually wild. I never, never in a million years would I have expected my brother to be the draw card for an article click, but here we are. Here we are. All right. Let's, let's take the focus back to flagship. So tell me, flagship had an amazing standard online retailer, really made an impact for me, caught my attention. Can you share with our audience what flagship is and how you came up with it? 
Yeah, so the whole backstory to Flagship came about because I was so heavily involved in e-com. I ran my own pure play jewellery e-com site. I was helping Fenroy with their e-com site. And the more I helped Venroy, who are quite a prominent kind of especially Sydney-based apparel brand, the more I realized that the brick-and-mortar world was this black hole for them. And then the more I dove into it, the more I realized that this wasn't unique to them and it was consistent in retail across the board. And my whole world was e-com, it was digital, it was data, it was analytics. And coming into a world that didn't have any data just didn't sit well with me. So the ultimate goal for us was how do we bring more of that e-com world into brick and mortar? And it's quite ironic because the people who understand our products straight away aren't the brick and mortar guys, it's the e-com guys. (laughs) So often my in at a brand is through the e-com manager because they just understand us straight away. And there are more and more pure players who are coming in store and those are the retailers who understand our value proposition straight away and where we have a lot of engagement and yeah, we've had the most engagement today. Yeah, that's funny that you take the e-commerce experience in store and that e-commerce people are the ones that get it because I feel there's this real surge of interest at the moment, especially post-COVID around that in-store experience. 100%. I mean, historically in retail, there's always been this battle between the online and the offline world. When you look at omni-channel retailers, the two teams are very much separate. You have your online team and you have your in-store team and each have their own KPIs and each are almost competing with each other. And the in-store team don't want to offer click and collect because now someone's coming into the store to pick up an item that should have been their sale that they're now missing out on. So there's been this real kind of disconnect and what we're seeing more and more with retailers is not a one versus the other, but how can one leverage off the other? And that's what we're seeing with retailers who are doing it the best. Um, that's that's their mentality for a couple of retailers who who were traditionally pure players who came in store. It's actually their e-com managers who are driving that in-store rollout so that they have that single channel, single customer view. I'd love to come back to that separation between the two worlds and whether you think that separation is going to come together or get worse. But before we do, so we've got, our listeners are in the right headspace. Can you share exactly how flagship works in store? Yeah, so we leverage off batteryless Bluetooth stickers. So for a lot of retailers, they, they understand the notion of RFID. This is basically RFID on steroids. So we're able to use Bluetooth to triangulate and understand the location of an item without having to necessarily have the item go through or go past the physical gate. So the great thing about Bluetooth is the signal itself can help us understand location. And now the technology's gotten to a point where it's basically printed in the exact same way that RFID is. We now get the economies of scale and the pricing benefit that you get with RFID, but the functionality and location benefit that you get from Bluetooth. Gotcha. And so from a retailer's perspective, when they get new stock into store, are they putting the same sticker on every item? So the, the stickers get applied at the factory. So what happens is we have the ability to install our sensors basically at every point in the supply chain. 
So at the moment, it's manufactured. We can tell a retailer where in its production line it is. Once it gets to the warehouse, we can tell them it's arrived at the warehouse. And once it's arrived at the store, we can tell them the same. So retailers no longer need to do that kind of receiving stock count because we always get a signal the moment it hits the store. We actually can proactively count stock for them. So with a lot of the retailers we're speaking to, in some cases, it can take a week or more to actually get stock out onto the floor just because they don't have the manpower, they don't have the bandwidth to receive in that stock. So the stock in some cases will just sit in a fitting room until it gets merchandised, which means for a week you lose a fitting room and for a week you can't sell that stock. Whereas what we enable the retailer to do is just to put the stock out onto the floor straight away, just receive the stock, merchandise it, and we can see it's there. So we can give you a stock count after the fact and tell you exactly what came to the store and potentially what didn't come to the store. Ever scrolled through an e-commerce packaging website for fun? Nah, me neither. Until today. Paclio is putting the joy into the packaging game. So let's play a game. I'll tell you the name of the Paclio product and you have to try and guess what kind of product they are. Fairy Floss, Compostable Mailer, Queen Bee, Honeycomb Padded Mailer, here we go, Gummy Shark, Water Activated Tape. Now, if my jaded self thinks that this packaging is fun, imagine what your customers will think. Paclio is also eco-friendly, Australian-owned and operated with same-day dispatch and 14-day returns. Now, that's pure joy for everyone. Check out the Paclio range of e-commerce packaging options at paclio.com. That's paclio, P-A-C-K-L-E-O, paclio.com. From a data perspective, when you're applying those stickers in the manufacturing process, is that matching to a retailer's PIM at that point? Yeah, we get the, the, all the barcode information associated with the product. So once it's on the product, we, we understand everything about that product, the color, the size, the style, the pattern, everything associated with that style. It's amazing. And you've already mentioned a few use cases there, but where are you finding that retailers are getting the most benefit from this? So there's twofold. One's from a cost-saving perspective. So being able to reduce or remove the man hour required to count, receive, locate stock there's the cost savings perspective from shrinkage perspective. So because we always have visibility of an item, as soon as we lose visibility of an item and we don't have a legitimate reason that we've lost visibility, we can associate that to theft. And then because we have a timestamp for when we last saw that item, we know the moment that item was potentially stolen. So we can overlay that with a timesheet. We can use CCTV at that point in time to really hone in on on who is potentially responsible. So I saw a stat that internal theft equates accounts for 57% of all shrinkage. So if we can potentially remove 57% of shrinkage, that's a huge benefit. So that's the cost-saving side. And then the, the sales upside perspective, the goal for us is to increase full price sales through as much as we can. There's always been this notion and this expectation in retail that you have to be on sale in order to get a sale. And we want to help shift that narrative. There's always going to be a customer who's coming in who's prepared to buy 
pay full price. The goal is to convert as many of them as possible so that you're left with as little as possible when it comes time to discount. So helping them understand where stock should be placed in the store, helping them make sure that stock is actually on the floor and it's not just sitting in the stock room, helping them understand what's being tried on, what's being purchased or what's being tried on and not being purchased to make sure that any underperforming items aren't necessarily taking up real estate on the shop floor. It's helping retailers understand and it's kind of the exact same mentality that I had when I was running an e-com site. It's I've got limited category pages. I've got limited customer attention span to hold. And while I've got their attention, I need to maximize what I'm putting in front of them. So I don't want to send them to a page that's got product that's not performing. I want to send them to my hottest performing product. And it's the exact same thing in the store. If someone's coming into a store, you've got a limited window where you have, where you've got their, um, you've got their attention and you need to make sure that you're putting the right product in front of them at the right time in order to close that sale. Absolutely. That's fascinating. I love that. You know, even that idea of being able to see what customers are picking up, walking around with, taking the change room, how long are they staying in the change room with the product is fascinating. Stuff that retailers have never had before, right? For sure. I mean, again, when I was running ICE, I, I had a pot jar on my site. I'm sure most listeners know what hot jar is, but for those that don't, we can basically see the movement of a user through the site and I would sit there for hours on end just watching customer sessions and see how are people interacting with my site, where are they clicking, what are they doing, why are they bouncing, they're searching for this product and we don't have it or they're trying to do this and it's not working. I had this inherent need. There's almost like an obsessive need to know what was going on in my site and I want to create that same ability in store. So similar to how I had Google Analytics open at all points in time to see what's happening on my site. I want to create that same ability for brick and mortar. You can be sitting at your desk and see what is happening right now. I can be on holidays on the other side of the world and still see what's happening in my stores, which has been the case in e-com. People have been able to build e-com and run e-com sites from anywhere in the world. But when it comes to brick and mortar, you have to be localized to where you are. So the goal is to create that visibility and also that control so that you can make decisions and make changes from wherever you are in the world. Yeah, that makes total sense. Has there been anything that you've seen personally or with your retailers so far that's really surprised you about customer behavior? I'd probably say that the biggest kind of takeaway is often what you hear is your reality. And what happens with a lot of these retailers is they keep hearing from customers, you need more extra large, you need more extra large. And because they hear them, they do it. And then what do they get left with at the end of every collection is all the extra largest. And often, again, with brick and mortar, it generally ends up being the case of whichever store shouts the loudest gets the outcome. And that store, and often it's the last interaction that that store had with a customer that they remember. So a lot of brick and mortar is anecdotal feedback. And if you have one store who's shouting aloud or saying, we need more of this size of this style, and they're constantly saying it, then head office decides to implement it. And it was actually a very small subset of a small customer in one store. And that doesn't actually represent every other store that exists. So now a retailer is potentially making a decision that is going to leave them with quite a large number of excess stock at the end of it. Mm. And we've alluded to fashion there as the case in point. Can you share some of the retailers and the categories that you're most likely to be working with? 
Yeah, our focus is definitely apparel at the moment for one key reason. The main reason is there's a clear path to purchase. If you look at an e-com site, a customer's got a path to purchase. They come through the homepage, they hit a category page, product, add to cart, checkout. And you can track a customer through all of those journey funnels. Apparel, you have similar. A customer picks up an item, they walk with it to a fitting room, from the fitting room to a checkout counter. You have kind of that same concept of a customer journey as you would from an e-com perspective. And each of those points in a journey allow for a different decision to be made. So if you were to think an electronics retailer, for example, sure, we can put our tags and know where it is in the store, but it's not like someone's going to walk into Harvey Norman and pick up a printer and walk around with it and then decide if they, if they want to keep it. So it becomes a bit more challenging to give those insights for non apparel footwear. We can create a customer journey apparel. We can create a customer journey. And over time, we hope to create kind of different ways to create the customer journey in non fashion brands. But definitely for now, our focus is fashion. Yeah, great. And who are some of the fashion brands that you've got on already? So we're working at the moment with P Nation, with Van Roy Academy Brand. There are a number of other retailers that we're scoping out at the moment that I I have this knack of jumping the gun and jinxing myself. So <laughs> until we're live, I keep it close to my chest. So yeah, working through a number of other installations now. And yeah, hopefully, hopefully start to get some results to keep kicking on from there. Exciting. And you mentioned the omni-channel and what you've triggered for me is that pain point, especially around click and collect, where you don't know exactly where stock is. It could be, hey, it looks like we've got one of these left, but it could be display stock. It could be damaged stock. It could be customers walking around the shop. It says we've got some left, but customers have got it in their hands in the change room or whatever. Do you see uh, flagship playing a role there for helping omni-channel retailers give a better experience for customers? 100%. A lot of retailers, especially in the play, in, in kind of the space that we're playing at the moment, don't even offer click and collect for the main reason that they don't trust their inventory numbers and they don't want to risk poor customer experience. So for us to be able to give them the confidence to know, okay, we see that item, we know it's in stock, we know it's available, you can actually sell it. Um, and then also having that ability to dynamically see what's currently potentially unavailable because it's being tried on, because it's been damaged, because someone's currently walking around with it. So being able to dynamically adjust inventory so that we don't risk selling an item that won't be there when that customer turns up. And on the flip side, there's nothing worse than when head office thinks there is an item in the store and it's not there not only from a click and collect perspective, but also from a replenishment perspective. Uh, because if they think there's stock and there's no stock, then that store's never receiving new shipments of that item, which affects any flow on sales. So it's kind of this double-edged sword. Potentially someone's stolen the items, which is terrible because now someone's taken and not paid for it. But then there's the, the, other, the other side of it where now you're not getting any future sales because that item's no longer in the store. So it's almost this massive double whammy. Yeah, absolutely. And do you find that your retailers, they still need to do their manual stock take? The goal is to remove it entirely. We're very much in kind of a phased pilot rollout. So we're not yet in a position where we have every single item of every single store tagged up. The moment we get to that point, we'll be able to have the confidence to take a retailer. You don't need to stock count ever again. 
the doors will open up very, very wide. <laughs> <laughs> well, even, again, from an e-com perspective, and this is, again, consistent with a lot of retailers I speak to, that at ICE, we had a threshold. I said, if we've got less than three units in stock, I don't want to list it on the site because I don't want to risk selling it and it's not in stock. It actually hurt me every time I had to refund an order because it was out of stock. And so, yeah, we had that threshold. And what ended up happening was we ended up with twos of everything because we, we had in stock, but I wasn't prepared to sell it. So even at a warehouse level, being able to give that confidence to say, we see it's there, we know it's in stock, you can sell it. And also that ease and speed of locating. So from a click and collect and an e-com film perspective, in, from a click and collect perspective, if there is an item, it's not where it's meant to be, a customer's picked it up, they thought they wanted it, they walked around the store, didn't want it, didn't want to try it on, and they just chucked it on a random rack and it's not where it's meant to live. And now there's an order for that item and the staff spend 30, half an hour to an hour looking for that item and suddenly they've eroded any margin they had in that item. And the other side of it is also from an e-com perspective, someone has placed an order, potentially someone from customer service has gone and taken that item because they need to send a picture, because they need to do something with it, and it's sitting on their desk. And then when the when the picker has gone to grab it, it's not there, they mark it out of stock, you refund the order when the item was actually available. So now that's an even bigger double-edged sword because now you've refunded an order that you didn't need to refund in the first place. Yeah. I used to work with a retailer as a client and it was a Westfield. They had a Westfield store, but they had a little back room, not a huge back room because it was Westfield, but they also had a just off-site, just tiny off-site, just near the car park storeroom of items that they need to have close on hand. No one knew where anything was, whether it was a storefront, out that little back room or there. And there was so much time wasted going in between. I can see this as such a brilliant, brilliant answer for that. Yeah. The goal is for a retailer to be able to plug in a SKU and we tell them exactly where it is. And we overlay that on a floor plan and we put a little marker to say, this is where it is, go and get it. And I can imagine, given your experience and the success you've already seen with Flagship, that you have a thousand ideas in the direction that this could go, especially when we're talking about starting at the manufacturing process and going all the way through. I bet that opens up so many doors. Is that a challenge from you trying to keep focused on the main message that you've got in market at the moment versus opening up all these opportunities? Yeah, huge challenge. My biggest strength and also my biggest weakness is my ability to ideate. And what that's resulted in is this huge product backlog. Um, but where it's a weakness is when it was just me and engineers, I'd send my engineers in 10 different directions at any point in time. So it actually brought on a product manager who can sit between me and them. So I can send him in 10 different directions, then he can funnel through to them what's really important. He's really helped us create that structure. So I've got a million and one ideas of what I want to do and he'll help us kind of build it and, and scale it in a really effective way. You've essentially been had a mind to put on you. Exactly. And it's funny, it's one of these products where I sit with someone and I explain it to them and they're like, oh, you could do this, this and this now. And I'm like, yes, yeah, that's like phase 50 because I've got 49 other things. But it's one of these products where people keep coming up with new kind of ideas and that's what we want to do is we want to be able to keep building on top of what we are doing how do you prioritize what ideas you do take to market if you've got that list of 50 that's my product manager he's a wizard he just he he knows the end goal he's closer to the engineers than i am so he knows the effort versus reward 
and he's he's got I don't know he's pieced it all together in his in his brain. And there have been times where I've said I need this and I need it yesterday. And then there are times where he's kind of management expectations. I'm like, okay, if we have it in a year, that's also okay. Yeah, that's nice because you'd be on the forefront of clients and not demands, this is the wrong word, but requests from retailers and to have that person sitting in between is really smart. 100%. And I'm a real kind of yes man. Someone will say, can you do this? And I'm like, well, we can't right now, but I'll make it work. And then he turns around to me, he's kind of kicking me under the table saying, stop saying that. And last thing on flagship, because I'm really keen to hear more about your personal story as well. What's the commercial model for retailers? So we sell the tag to the retailer. It is a sticker. However, there is a way for us to enable that sticker to be reusable. So we sell the sticker. We have like a small installation fee to fit out the store with our hardware. And then it's just a per store per month fee. Gotcha. And they have their own dashboard to look at the data and, and everything else. Exactly. Yeah, beautiful. Now, you mentioned your journey with ICE. Can you share the story behind ICE and how you were one on the forefront of coming into e-commerce? And I'm keen to then get to the point where up to last year, I only saw that you stepped away as CEO and I'm keen to hear how that decision was. So, But let's start with your history for anyone who doesn't know it with ICE. Sure. So my parents were jewelers. They had a store in the Sydney CBD for 30 odd years. So I've always been in and around jewellery. I was brought up in their store, working in their store. And so I always had this kind of inherent understanding of jewellery. I always say that jewellery is an industry that you are born into. Very few people break into it. It's very generational. And I was at school. I would have been 16 at the time. And I was very aware of Pandora. I'd sold it in my parents' store. I saw how easily it sold. And anytime I saw anyone wearing Pandora, I'm like, oh, you're wearing Pandora. And I felt like a king because I was able to identify the brand of bracelet they're wearing. And one of the people that I mentioned it to was one of my school teachers. And she's like, oh, yeah, how'd you know? I said, well, my parents, my parents sell. And I said, if you ever want a discount, let me know. And she's like, sure. And it got to the point where, where she was, um, she kind of became my seller almost. <laughs> You're wearing a trench coat to school with like jewelry. <laughs> I mean, honestly, not far off. So we'd come, we'd exchange purchase orders. I'd meet her out at Westfield, we'd exchange product. And, and I had kind of a little nifty business there. And at the same time, I was selling, selling Pandora on eBay, which was doing pretty well. Like I was 16 year old and I was pretty happy with the cash that was coming in. And then I was going into my HSC year. My brother's coming back from his gap year. So I handed over the keys to him. And he, I mean, in in true Nick fashion, he kind of picked it up and ran with it. And then I was coming back from my gap year at the same time that he was starting to kind of convert the eBay store into a standalone store. And yes, I started kind of plugging away at ice with him and Originally, it was very much kind of 50-50 eBay versus site. And it was almost, I mean, this is quite like the level of competition we had, but I was almost like I I would try and build the website and he would try and build the eBay site. And, kind of, <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah. Who he, won? I mean, in the long term, I won just because I switched yeah. off the eBay side. So <laughs> I kind of so cheated glad. a bit. <laughs> and yes, obviously, like you mentioned before, my brother went off to, to start Afterpay, so he left me to fight the battle myself. And yeah, I, I started yeah kicking things on myself. 
And Simon, when you and Nick started up the online store and the eBay store, what were your parents' perceptions? Did they think that it was going to turn out as big as it would as it was online, or were they kind of content with the physical store? I think my mom saw the opportunity. My dad hated us because they're always there were people coming into his store with our website on his phone saying, I can see this at a cheaper price. Can you match it? And he's kind of like hating us because we've got all these people coming in trying to undercut him. So yeah, I think it was kind of like a natural progression. E-commerce was prominent, but jewelry in e-com wasn't really a thing at the time. I think everyone assumes you've got jewelry, people want to touch it, feel it. It's a high price point, so it's a riskier item to ship. But we found, especially in branded jewelry, we had really good cut through because people knew what they were getting. And we had this really, really fort, we were in a really fortunate position where for a lot of products, the more expensive it is, generally the bigger it is. Whereas with jewelry, the more expensive it is, it doesn't change in size. You can have a $10,000 ring, which is the exact same size as a $5 ring. And what that meant was our shipping costs were always really manageable and we were able to, yeah, to, to grow and scale in a really controlled way. One of the most surreal experiences I've ever had is I did some consulting for a large national retail outlet jeweler and was in the head office and doing our thing was first or second day in there. And then they were like, do you want to come and see the warehouse? And I'd come from a background of auto parts and camping and warehouses are absolutely massive, right? They're football fields. And so I'm like, yeah, well, let's go have a look at the warehouse. Let's go have a walk around, go through all the relative checks and everything else and get to this door. And it's a big safe door, as you'd expect. And I'm expecting a warehouse, warehouse, right? I walk in and it's literally three, oh, what would it be? Three by four meters. That's literally where we operate out of. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that was stocking, you know, tens of stores around Australia. And it's just such a different game, isn't it? Um, exactly what you said. hundred percent. I mean, again, there are challenges associated because of the price point. So actually holding stock is an expensive exercise. So we had to do that again in a really controlled way. So we started almost 100% drop shipped. So we create, I mean, in quotes, drop shipped. So we place the orders in bulk with our suppliers after the customers made the order. They would get shipped to us. We would repackage it once it arrived to us and send it on to the customer. And then as we grew and we saw which items performed better, we were able to hold stock of better sellers, which brought with it better margins and it brought with it a better customer experience because we were able to ship it quicker and we had more control of the order cycle. But yeah, it was definitely everything I always did. And again, it's kind of why I started flagship. Everything was always very data-driven, data-focused, data-leading the way. And I never made a decision without a data point. I always joke that I actually don't know the first thing about jewelry. I just know how to read data and I know how to put the right product in front of the right person at the right time. That was literally the crux of it. And I could be selling anything. It's irrelevant. It's just what's someone looking for, what product best suits what they're looking for, and let's show it to them. Trapeca is an Australian nutrition brand born on Shopify back in 2016, such a long, long time ago. Four years later, volumes have increased, B2B has become a priority, and it was time to scale. This meant a transition from Shopify to Shopify Plus. And what a transition it was with the addition of personalized discounts, cart optimizations, and a custom checkout. Trapeca were able to increase their average order value from $89 to $94 
across 15,000 orders per month. That is a sign of a very healthy partnership. To read more of Trapeka's story and see other case studies, visit the customer section on shopify.com.au forward slash plus. It feels like retail flows through your blood. Like it just seems so natural to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, again, it's one of these things that I took for granted. I, I started, like when I finished school, I started as a software engineer, then I moved into digital marketing, then data, then got into ICE. And only a couple of years really into ICE that I realized how much of that retail mindset that my parents instilled rubbed off on me. It took me a while to really understand like, okay, I'm actually a retailer. <laughs> Does that make it hard at family gatherings to go, can we just not talk about retail for a little bit? Yes and no. I mean, sitting around, literally around this table that I'm sitting at right now, to be honest, there have been so many business conversations, like Afterpay was ideated here, ICE was ideated, and a lot of progressive conversations were had. The number of times, even early days of Afterpay, where I say to Nick, oh, you guys should do X, Y, and Z. And he's like, yeah, that's a great idea. And we duck off into the into the office and, and roll it out. So it's never felt laborious. It's never felt like work. It's just felt like fun and natural. And I guess that's one of the best things about what we've done is at no point in my entire ICE or flagship or even half-paid journey has it really ever felt like I was doing something that I didn't love doing. Yeah. And it must feel surreal now to see, say, Afterpay, the journey there that you've been on with Nick. It's like you must feel surreal to go from that moment of, hey, I remember when we came up with this idea to see where it sits in the minds and like in terms of it just being a household name worldwide now. Yeah, it's very, very surreal. I mean, I think in a lot of cases, when you're caught up in it, you lose sight of it. And the number of times I've like messaged Nick and I'm like, you just need to take a moment and stop and look back at like what you've built. It's almost like when you, when you're climbing, I don't know, climbing Mount Everest and you're so focused on climbing that mountain that you don't look back behind you. And then once you look back and you see how far you've come, you're like, okay, this is, I'm not saying that I've ever climbed Mount Everest or intend to ever climb Mount Everest, but it's how I assume it would be. <laughs> but yeah, there have been a few moments where you kind of look back. It's like, okay, even after online retailer a couple of weeks ago, there were a few kind of pinch yourself moments on the back of that, that I definitely don't take for granted. What were they? Just the number of people coming up to us saying, I've heard I need to come and speak to you guys. The amount of traffic that we had, the amount of interest that we had, we're in the grand scheme of things, a relatively new business. And to have the awareness and the recognition from your peers at such an early stage is really humbling. And that really, we came in, we went to the Orioles on Thursday night. So everyone took Friday to recover. And we came back in on Monday and I pulled everyone aside and said, I don't want you guys to lose sight of how amazing it is that you guys have been able to get us to where we've gotten to in the time span you've been able to get us there. The speed of the product being built, the speed of the rollouts to retailers, the speed of some kind of industry recognition is a real pinch yourself feeling. That's amazing. And I had exactly the same experience. I got told by three or four people, have you been to the flagship stand yet? (laughs) And when I got there, yeah, I was blown away. But then in our pre-chat, before we even got on here, you said that it was a last-minute addition to online retail. You weren't even planning it. Yeah, we're at Retail Global in April, and I've got a really strong team. I love my team. 
there's just not a heap of retail experience there. And I wanted to give them exposure. I wanted to show them what the retail world was like. So we went to the Gold Coast, we walked the floor, went to kind of a couple of talks and events there. And while I was there, I was walking around and I said to myself, online retailers around the corner, it's the first one since COVID. People are going to be coming out of the woodworks. We have to have a presence there. And yeah, I basically, I, I gave one of my guys a task. She had two months to get a booth up and running. And yeah, it was just, it, we were really fortunate that everything, everything came together. Well, not just fortunate it came together. You won the best stand award. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's funny. I, I, again, I didn't even know there was an award. And then on the first, like the very first thing I heard on the very first day of online retail was that there was a best booth award. And as soon as I heard that, I needed to have it. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> if, if I hadn't known, I would have been content. But because I knew it existed, I, I one of my also big things is I'm incredibly competitive. And once I knew that it was attainable, I just had to have it. That's amazing. Well done. Now, just to finish up, I'd love to leave with your thoughts on the future of retail, but specifically around this merging of real experiences and online experiences. You mentioned before that you're working with a lot of online retailers who get what you're creating for the physical store. Do you think the experiences are going to come together more or are we going to see more separation into more channels? I think the retailers that do it the best and the retailers who get the best results are the retailers who treat their business as a true omni-channel experience. Retailers often say we're omni-channel, but they still have this a real disconnect between one and the other. They were seeing more and more pre-COVID. There was a big fear for brick-and-mortar retail. And post-COVID, it's almost been the opposite. People have realized how much they need and crave that human interaction. And what we're seeing more and more are the pure players coming in store. P Nation came in store. Star Runner came in store. Sir The Label came in store. You're seeing one by one these brands that were traditionally pure player coming in store. And Mark Tepperson from Afterpay, formerly Accent Group, put it the best way. He said, retailers are no longer looking at their stores as a dollar per square meter. It's now dollars per square mile. And that was the the most kind of eye-opening statement that I heard. And it's it's the best way to put it that the store itself, as much as it is a sales channel, it's a marketing tool. And retailers almost need to create this unified KPI. So for a store, their KPI should be, should include sales driven to econ. So if someone's come into the store and then they've gone home and because of their experience in store, they've converted online. It's almost a, a team effort. And there needs to be this unified view and this unified vision that a customer shopping on online that started in store is attributed back to that store. There are going to be four different types of customers. There are going to be customers who shop exclusively online, customers who shop exclusively in store. And then there are going to be customers who start their journey online and finish in store and customers who start the journey in store and finish online. And the key for retailers is how do you service every single one of those types of customers? And what I learned as a pure player is that I can only service the online-only customers. For a long time, brick-and-mortar retailers resisted coming online and having that online presence, and they completely neglected the online-only customers. 
And what's really important for retailers now is making sure that whatever way a customer wants to interact with their brand, whether they want to start online, come in store, come in store, finish online, that they're really, they're served in the right way. They can find their product in the most effective, the fastest possible way. And that the brand tailors the experience towards that customer. Yeah, it's a fascinating point and I couldn't agree more. Do you think, just to follow up on that question, do you think that we're going to almost see two classes of physical store? You know, we're going to have the D2Cs who are reinventing how to build a store, like really, like they're approaching it a totally different way versus the old model of create the product, then create the experience. They're kind of creating the experience and then filling it with whatever product or sometimes not even filling it with product at all. Do you feel we're, we're going to have two different types of experiences or do you think it'll all kind of all come together eventually? I think it'll ultimately come together. I mean, not saying it, it won't necessarily be the, the D2C versus traditional that will do it differently. I think it will be more which retailers themselves are more innovative. And we're seeing, again, more and more retailers creating these really unique customer experiences. You have, I'm pretty sure it was Kathmandu that created their minus 20 degree fitting rooms. You've got Quicksilver in the US that have created a wave pool to actually try out their product. Obviously, in Australia, it's a lot harder to do all these things because of the cost of pro- uh, property and rent and wages. You just set up a tent on the beach. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah. So I think... Customers come in store because they want that unique experience and each brand, again, more and more understanding what their voice is and what that unique experience is that they're offering to the customer. And it's not necessarily like a, a experience isn't necessarily coming in and having champagne offered to you as soon as you walk in. It's in the level of the service. It's in the, the customer flow. It's in the customer journey. It's in the way that you personalize your communications to the customer after the fact or how that person in the store remembers the person that came in and, and recommends product based on what they've purchased historically. They're going to be all these little nuances. I played a lot of sport growing up and my dad's biggest point that he drew into me was doing the one percenters. And I think that is the absolute most critical thing in any way, shape or form, not just in sport, but in business about how you do the little things right. And those little one percenters, and it can seem like something that's so minuscule, but that something that's so minuscule has such a big impact on the customer. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So speaking of one percenters and improvements, what is next for yourself and the flagship team? (laughs) Um, For us, I mean, the biggest focus for me is making sure that every day we are further ahead in our journey than we were the day before. It's making sure we're always making progress, always moving forward. Again, we are still early in, in our journey. So it's making sure that we, we build in the fastest, but also most stable and most structured way that we can doing things right for us, not just what's going to grow us the fastest. Again, coming back to, to my sporting, I played a lot of rugby. And again, one of the points that my dad drilled into me is that you need to earn the right to throw the ball around. And that kind of statement is you need to earn the right to scale. You need to earn the right to grow. And if you don't build the right foundations and the right structures, then you're going to grow and it's going to come back to bite you because you, you've got that kind of unstable footing. So, yes, really making sure that we do the absolute basics right. We get everything right from the ground up. And then once we've nailed that, then we can scale knowing that we've earned the right to scale. Yeah, I love that. 
Perfect. I kind of want to have your dad on the podcast as well. <laughs> you know what? I think you could do a lot worse and he would love it. I would probably say you'd need both mum and dad on the podcast though. But yeah, I think, again, it's one of those things that you, you kind of like look back in hindsight and you realize how lucky you are. And I think, um, yeah, I think my, my parents definitely instilled the right things in me growing up. Incredible. Simon, if we've got retailers listening to this and going, I'm loving the sound of this. I'm, I really want to get in front of it. I missed the booth, but I want to, I want to, um, have a look at, at this in person. What's the best way to get in touch with yourself or the team? Either add me on LinkedIn, Simon Molnar, or just shoot me an email, Simon at flagship.ai. Beautiful. Simon, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us on Add to Cart. All good. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was actually the first time that I had the pleasure of meeting Simon, and I really enjoyed the chat. You can tell that he just loves retail and has for a long time, and he's so optimistic about the future. And they're always the types of people that I love chatting with. Here are the top three lessons I took from my conversation with Simon. Number one, there are endless omni-channel options. And omni-channel is not a phase. In fact, it's going to get tighter and harder as online retailers enter physical retail and as physical retailers get smarter about how they integrate their online and offline worlds. But at the end of the day, there's no omni-channel playbook. You can't do everything everywhere and you're going to have to make choices. But retailers should respond to whatever way a customer wants to interact with their brand, whether it's in-store, online, a combination of both. They don't see it as omni-channel. They see it as shopping. Number two, opinions are like, yeah, well, you get it, right? Everyone's got one. Simon spoke today around the dangers of listening to everyone around you all of the time. And you can bet that he's had access to some of the greatest opinions in retail. But his advice, beware of anecdotal feedback. Try to verify in some way before acting on it. Getting validation from your customers beats an expert opinion anytime. And number three, Bring in the middleman or middlewoman. Simon talked about his ability to ideate being his biggest strength, but also his biggest weakness. While he has the vision, he would end up confusing his engineers with too many ideas and opportunities that push the boundaries. Bringing in a product manager was his answer to making sure that his ideas led to real outcomes. Now, if your ideas aren't translating to the right actions, consider whether you need to bring in a professional translator to help bring those ideas to life. To get the highlights of today's episode, head on over to addtocart.com.au and sign up for our free newsletter. Each Tuesday, we will send Monday's episode summary, links, and discount codes for you to go next level on. And if you're looking to explore your next e-commerce opportunity, come and visit us at eSuite. We're a dedicated e-commerce talent agency, connecting the best e-commerce talent with the fastest growing brands in Australia. Head on over to esuitetalent.com.au where you can download the free e-commerce salary guide and sign up to our weekly e-commerce job emails. Thanks for listening. And until next time, keep those customers adding to cart.